People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM, and with great excitement, we have on the line from the UK, Louis de Bernier, the author of so many books. Uh, currently, we're going to discuss so much life left over, but he is the author of the very famous Captain Corelli's Mandolin, which was then made into a movie, and many other books besides. Welcome to High FM, Louis. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you for having me. I'm going to ask you to introduce yourself to our listeners in your own words and on your own terms. Gracious me, how long have I got? Um, Well, I'm 63 years old. I'm British, but of Huguenot descent, hence the surname. Um, Let me see. I grew up in the English countryside. Um, my parents were both very literate. My father was the kind of man who recites Shakespeare at the table. And I, I sort of grew up knowing that one day I was going to be a writer. Um, I never seemed to have much choice in that. Um, what else would you like to know? Well, that's a wonderful way because you've, you've defined yourself as more than just the books that you've written, uh, all the way back to the Huguenot ancestry, which is very interesting. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I think we well, can... Quite a lot of Huguenots settled in South Africa, didn't they? Yes, yes, we do have uh, quite a lot of French surnames in the, Af- in, uh, in the African population of South Africa because, yeah, you know, 250 Huguenots came to South Africa in the 1650s, yeah. Um, That's right, yeah. So much uh, of the book, so much life left over... Uh, well, no, sorry, the book So Much Life Left Over continues the lives and stories of the characters started in your previous book in this sequence, The Dust That Falls From Dreams. Please, can you introduce our listeners to the main characters in the two books? Well, the main character, I think, is is a fellow called Daniel Pitt. He's... um he becomes a, a fighter ace in the First World War. And um, in 1918, he, he marries Rosie, who, who unfortunately lost her fiancé in, uh, in um, 1915. Uh, and she never really got over it. So the marriage gets off to a very bad start. You know, she still can't help thinking about her dead fiancé. She has uh, three sisters who find... Um, well, interesting ways to get through the First World War. You know, previously they would have just stayed at home and working for a husband. But one of them becomes a car mechanic on the Western Front. One, one joins the Snapshot League and takes pictures to send to the boys on the front. Um, another one becomes um, a VAD, which is um, a sort of amateur nurse. And that's what Rosie does, too. Daniel, on the other hand, has only one surviving brother, Archie, uh, who is on the northwest frontier in India. And his two older brothers uh, died in South Africa in, um, d- during the Boer War, one in an ambush and one of um, dysentery. <laughs> so there's a little connection with South Africa there. Um, and uh, the story really is about all these two families and, 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 and their friends and relations. Um, it's a family saga, uh, which I'm finding quite difficult to do because... Obviously, as time goes by, more and more of them die, and it becomes more and more depressing. So you have to have new people being born as the old ones die off, and it's, it's really quite hard to keep track of it all. But that's the idea, and it's, it's, it eventually will be a trilogy. And uh, 
it's based on roughly what did happen in my family. I, I had a grandfather who made a bad marriage and progressively disappeared and was eventually found in the Rocky Mountains in Canada at the age of 96, um, where he'd been working as a night watchman in a quarry belonging to the Sinokamine Indians. So um, I, I've got an interesting sort of background to build on, even though I don't know very much detail. And then the two time periods that the two, so far the two books uh, are set in. So the first one is around the First World War, and then the second... Well, you can flesh that out as well, because there's a lot more British history, I suppose, that you've put into the first one than just the First World War. And also the time period of the second book, uh, So Much Life Left Over. Can you talk about the time periods? Yes. The first one starts with the, with the death of Queen Victoria in the beginning of the Edwardian age, which was a time of great optimism in Britain. Um, and, of course, that was all knocked sideways by the First World War. Um, by which time King Edward was dead and we had King George V instead, who, who was actually a very good king. But, um, so the, the first period, it, it starts with the, with the golden Edwardian age and it ends with 1918 with everybody wondering what the hell we're going to do now. I mean, what do you do after such a titanic struggle? What can be as important again? And th that, that question is what dominates the second book, which goes from the end of the First World War up until the beginning of the Second World War. It's, it's that, that sort of long hiatus in the middle of what was really just one big war. Um, and the, the third book, which I'm working on now, will, will, will take us up to about 1980. So the whole, I, I sort of feel the 20th century falls into three acts. And um, so that, that's that's why the book is divided up into three. As an author, and you're talking about all the historical periods that you're looking back on the 20th century, dividing into the three acts. You've not only these three books, but many of your other books as well. You spent a large part of your writing career writing historical fiction. What draws you yeah. to the past, as opposed to writing contemporary fiction? And which and which periods and which which periods do you are you drawn most to? Um, I'm definitely drawn to the 20th century. I, I don't think I would attempt to write anything earlier than that. Um, I'm suspicious of writing contemporary fiction because um, you can make a lot of misjudgments um, about the relative historical importance of things, and you can include things you know contemporary slang for example which everybody has completely forgotten or thinks is ridiculous in 20 years time and I feel actually that I don't really understand the present very well so I can't I can't write about it but I, I do understand the past and I, I, th I think it's because of growing up in a family where my, my parents went through the second world war and my grandparents went through the first world war so I grew up listening to all the stories their reminiscences and uh or the friends that they lost and the things that they did and the places that they went. Um, and also, I mean, I, I had extremely a, a wonderful history teacher at one of my schools who, who really sparked it all off, I think. He, he was called Major Nelson, and he'd been a Gurkha in the Indian Army. And every single history and geography lesson began with, when I was out in India, and then off we go with some amazing story about Gurkhas cutting off people's heads with their cookeries. Um, <laughs> I think that's the reason. So it's, it's true that, that, that 
a, a school teacher can have such a long laugh last a, a laugh lasting impact on a student that your 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 interest in history was stoked by a teacher and then ignited and now you you immersing yourself in the writing of historical fiction years and decades yeah. after yeah, but the, the nice thing about Major Nelson, for example, was he didn't just tell you that, you know, Metternich was an important politician or Lord Palmerston uh, made this decision about the Austrians. He, 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 the way he did history was that it was full of anecdotes. It was about cutting off people's heads with cookies. And, and I think my approach to history is, is really very anecdotal. I'm interested in the stories of the little people who get caught up in it. I hope that, that makes sense. It does, it but does. I, and and the yeah. way that you write your characters, that anecdote, that detail to the personal lived history does come across on the page. Your, your characters yeah. do come alive. Good. But it's not only your characters and the and and the historical period in which you you set in your your novels. Your you you set either parts or entire novels in what suppose from England or from from South Africa would seem as very exotic locales. Captain Kirillis Mandolin on the Greek island of Cephalonia and there's quite a lot of Salon uh, in so much life left over. What draws yeah. you to these places and, and how do you recreate them on the page? It's, it's nearly always personal actually. Um, so so my, my first three novels were set in an imaginary Latin American country and that's explained entirely by my having spent a year in Colombia when I was 19, uh, working on a ranch out in the countryside. And when I came home for the next 10 years, I read nothing but Latin American literature. So I had it, you know, you tend to get out what you put in. Um, it, we're rather like computers in that respect. Um, with, with the Catalonia story, I, I, I had got bored with writing magic realist novels set in an imaginary country and uh, my girlfriend at the time persuaded me to go to Greece just for a holiday and, you know, and we, we went to Catalonia and I, just, I realized straight away that, that there was a story that had never been told and um, that book led on to the next big one Birds Without Wings because Birds Without Wings is a sort of prequel to Captain Corelli it's got a character in common um, and I made lots of trips to Turkey over 10 years because I didn't really feel I understood the Turks as well as I understood the Greeks. Um, and the Salon connection is, is simply really because my parents did go there plenty. Now, my mother was there at the second She She was always telling us stories about her time there. It's, it's, it's really the legacy of empire, isn't it? You know, the Brits just thought they could go anywhere and do anything. And yeah. <laughs> we did. <laughs> Are you researching any other overseas locations for the third book? Yes, yes, oddly enough, South Africa. Because um, in his 60s, Daniel Pitt, my character, he, he takes the bones of his brother, Archie, to be buried in Peshawar in Northwest Frontier, where he, he, he had always said he wanted to be buried. And now he comes back via South Africa to visit the graves of his two brothers um, who are buried there. And uh, that's what I'm looking into now. So um, I'm reading an enormous uh, history of South Africa at the present. But I probably won't need that. Well, I just need to know what it was like in South Africa in the 1950s, um, after the Brits left, I suppose. Um, 
and also to find out what the landscape is like where those graves are. I, I do have I do have the um, information about where they are, but I haven't checked it out on the map yet. So that that's something I've got to look into, and I've also uh, I'm taking book Canada, so um, there'll be stuff in the Rocky Mountains as well. We're in conversation with Louis de Beignier. He's the author of Captain Curly's Mandolin and currently what's just been released, the book that's just been released, So Much Life Left Over. We'll be back with more conversation straight after this ad break. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. We have the great pleasure today to be speaking with the author of So Much Life Left Over, Louis de Bernier. He's joining us from the UK, and we are discussing the historical periods, the characters, the detail, and the, the approach to history based on bringing history to life, to life based on anecdotes and the stories of lived history. When, Louis, when I finished reading So Much Life Left Over, I had experienced an exquis- the exquisite writing on every page and, and many lives and experience far beyond my own. As an author, what do you want us readers to gain from reading your books? Um, I want them to have the same sort of feeling that you get when you come out of watching a really good film. I, 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 think, I think that when you... Uh, when you read a book, what happens is if you make your own film of it, don't you? You you definitely get to know what everyone looks like, what they sound like. You you even manage to imagine. When I finished reading So Much Life Left Over, I personally had experienced the exquisite writing and the many lives and experiences that you put into the book that were far beyond my own. As an author, when you write the books, what do you want the readers to take from the book once they've when they're reading and once they're finished well what I want is for the reader to uh, have the same kind of experience that you do when you see a really good film I think that when you read a book what you do what you're doing is making your own film out of the material that the, that the writer provides so it's the reader who actually knows what the characters look like and what they sound like and what the landscape is like um all, all that the writer is doing is providing the basic material for the reader to do that. And, and, uh, and if, if, if the reader comes away thinking that I, I have really seen and heard these people, I really know these people, I know this landscape, I know what it's like to have had their history, then that's, that's success from my point of view. And, and in terms of the themes of the book, especially the book that we're discussing right now, So Much Life Left Over, what themes did you want readers to ponder over? Um, I'm interested in all the different kinds of love, you know, not just romantic love. So there's a lot in that book about the love between parent and child, between um, between sisters, between parent and child, um, and so on. And I was also interested in how you put meaning into your life when no meaning has been given to you on a plate. So, because in the First World War, everybody had a purpose, you know, that you know, people were, women were driving buses and things. Everybody had something to get on with. 
what I was interested in was how do you put meaning into your life when you, suddenly you're back on your own again. So, you know, one of my characters, Rosie, she gets her meaning from her religious faith. Other people have to find it in other ways. I mean, but if you've read the book, you, I suspect you have an opinion yourself. You probably found some themes that appeal to you, did you? Yeah, yes, I do. I do, but I always like asking authors <laughs> what they put in because I, I do believe that works of literature are, are dynamic. It's the, you know, we all bring our own meaning to it, but sometimes yeah. you want to under, you want, I want to uncover what the author's intentions were so that uh, it's, all, it's a point of reference for my own opinions, my own interpretations and what I take up. But it, it's nice to have that, that point of reference. Um, the next point that I want to make uh, is something I was very impressed with, with, with the book in the sense that So Much Life Left Over is a short novel. It's just 275 pages. But within mm. those pages, you've managed to capture what many other authors would have written over 400 pages. It's intense, but it's very concise. How do you manage to be so powerful with so few words? I am puzzled about that myself, because the, the previous novel, The Dust That Falls From Dreams, was, was, had tongues in it, and some people said it was too long. Uh, when I finished um, this book, So Much Life Left Over, I was worried that I'd written another book that was too long. And then when I actually printed out all the sheets of paper, I realized that it wasn't a very long book at all. It just sort of felt that I'd written a vast amount. Um, I'm as mystified by this as you are, to be honest. <laughs> I could have done with another 150 pages because I really, I really formed relationships with the characters, especially with Daniel. Yeah, you know, somebody told me the other day they'd fallen in love with him. Um, I was surprised by that, but it's nice. But I, I think I think the, the next volume will be pretty big because it's got to get you from the Second World War up to about 1980. Um, but the funny thing about books is that they, they just come out the length that they do. It's very hard to plan how big it's going to be. You You just have a feeling when it's finished, and that's that. You also have a very playful streak that comes through the book. You put your surname, maybe it is the name of a town in France, but you do put your surname uh, into the novel as the name of a French town. And you also weave the phrase, the dust that falls from dreams, into the actual prose of the book. And it's also, it's a serious novel, but there's also these games that you as the author, I'm guessing, you're playing with us as the reader. Yes, I suppose so. Um, Bagnac-sur-Mer is a real little town um, on the Normandy coast between uh, Aramanche and Luxembourg. And I thought, well, why not put it in? Um, I think in the last book, um, Mr. McCosh, you know, Rosie's father, he, he, he has contact with a, a famous scientist at Leeds University, and that was my other, that was my great-grandfather a man called Snivels who worked on splitting the atom and things. So I, I do I do put all these little references in and, and people can either spot them or not. It's it's um it it's it's it is playfulness. It's not serious. But yeah, but I do enjoy it. It's it's it, it 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 is an enjoyable part of reading the book where you do see the author has the sense of humour and he's putting it in the book. Well I also I also include Doctor Yanis, you know, who's in Captain Crowley's mandolin. Yes. 
In this book, he turns up as the ship's doctor when Rosie and Daniel are coming back from Ceylon. And uh, I thought it'd be nice to have him back in, because he fits perfectly at that point. And what I'm trying to do is have all my novels refer to all my other novels, so that when I'm dead and gone and somebody reads all of them, they'll realize that I've just written one enormous book. It's, it's like in the, in the paint, in the art world, Vermeer has the same rug in many of his paintings and the same little, same little jugs. So you've got the same characters popping up in the different novels. It is a, it is a, it is a, it's a very beautiful thing, I think, for a, for a writer to, to do that within their collected works because it does bring a sort of coherence to everything that they've written. The, I want well, to, I, I think, that, hmm? sorry. No, you go ahead. I was saying, you know, writers, in, in a way, they usurp the place of God, don't they? they they're trying to create a whole, a whole world and a whole universe. And that's, and that's what I'm trying to do, really, by making all of these books refer to each other. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. We are discussing the book So Much Life Left Over with Louis de Bernier. And it is a beautiful, beautiful book. It's set between 1919 and 1939, and we're following the lives of a cast of characters. And on that point, do you have a favorite character, besides from the main character, Daniel Pitt? Is there somebody else or there a number of characters who have, you have a warm, a warm a spot, a, 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 a spot in your heart for? I think the father, the father of the four girls, um, uh, Hamilton McCosh, is a favourite. Um, he's a bit like one of my other great grandfathers, um, but he, he he dies halfway through the novel, so it's uh, in a way that'd be shame to um, to nominate him. I'm I'm very fond of the chaplain Fairhead. Then he's more in the last novel than in this one. Um, I'm fond of all of them. You know, it's um, it would be hard to pick one that I would bump off. Yeah, <laughs> I did enjoy um, Mrs. Nakosh, the 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 very prim and proper old lady, the matriarch of the family, and the the the, the scenes during World War Two and the the bombings of uh, of of England and the bomb shelters. She, she came alive at that moment of the book uh, even more than she was previously, but she's a very powerful. A very powerful matriarch as well. Yes, and she's she's distinctly uh, balmy as well. I mean, I, I think probably she has some kind of dementia. Um, she's she's obsessed with the royal family. Um, in the last book, she was always writing letters to the king, and she she's got very very blunt and slightly outrageous opinions, which is fun. I think my mother was like that, and. Um, she, she 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 she's got curious obsessions. Like she she, she bought she buys an air gun and uses it to shoot pigeons. And in the when the war breaks out, she tries to shoot down German airplanes with an air rifle. Um, yeah, I'm very fond of her. From the, the uh, nice thing is though, that yeah. her, her family know that she's a bit crazy, but they just put up with her. From a lot of our conversation today. It's, I was going to ask, do you incorporate real people into your novels? But I think the answer is a resounding yes. Some of, some of, some of the aspects of the personalities of your characters are based on real people. Yes, but 
but there are there are actually people that I don't know. So um, I've only got my father's story about his grandmother, for example. And I made up the bit about being obsessed with the royal family. And so many people are. Yeah. Um, especially people in Republican countries like the USA or France. They just want to talk about the royal family all the time. Um, so so they're, they're based on real people, but with the characters largely invented. So one or two things that are the same. You know, so that, that great-grandmother had a long affair with an English aristocrat called Lord Dunmore. And that's the only part of her diaries that I can't find. Um, so that 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 thing is mentioned. That that's mentioned very briefly. It's quite fun to take somebody you know existed and then just turn them into whatever you want. Yeah. yeah. Then this is uh, not so much on the book itself, but when you're not researching for your own writing for your own novels, what do you read, and which which authors do you read? I have crazies for writers. Um, I'll tend to read everything they've ever written and then move on to someone else. I mean, my most recent craze is for an Irish writer called Donald Ryan. He sets books in rural Limerick in Ireland and he, he catches the dialect absolutely beautifully. Um, and his characters from one book to another sort of refer to each other as well. Um, but the writer I always go back to, well, there are two I always go back to, and they are Thomas Hardy and John Steinbeck. They, they both write about what happens to little people when things go wrong. And um, th th that's the sort of thing I admire. I, I think of John Steinbeck as the American Thomas Hardy. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And, and you, you get inspiration from these writers. Oh, yes, I absolutely do. They're very, very good at characterization. And um, they write, they, and as I say, they, they, they don't really write about important people at all. They write about the little people who were caught up in events. A, a lot, the final question. Did any interesting events happen to you while you were researching the novel? So much life left over. Well, lots of interesting things happened uh, and funny things. Um, I, I went to Canada to try and find out what my grandfather's side of the story and met his old friends. And one of them was a man called Dave Birmingham. And he and my grandfather had built a huge white submarine. And the idea was to find the Okanaga Lake monster. And amazingly, the submarine actually did work. And they, they took it into Lake Okanaga to find the monster and found that the visibility in there was about one meter. So all, all that work was for nothing. But Dave said to me, I'm going to find that monster if I had to put it there myself. And then Dave, Dave wasn't sure what to feed me with, so he, he, he took a, a turkey out of his freezer and he cut the top of it off with a chainsaw. <laughs> a, a, real back, a real backwoodsman, you know. So lots of lovely, interesting things like that happen when you're researching. We've just been in conversation with Louis de Bernier. He's the author of So Much Life Left Over. It's just been released. It is a beautiful, beautiful book. It's a continuation. The previous book was The Dust, the Dust That Falls from the Dreams. But you've very successfully made So Much Life Left Over a standalone, even though it is a continuation. It is beautiful. And it's just been absolutely 
wonderful to be in conversation with you and have your thoughts you know, reopen the book for me and spill over the pages and add that much more, I suppose, life to the actual book. Thank you for joining us at Chai FM. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's been a delight. And maybe if you come to South Africa to research for the next book, you, we can we can bring you into the studio. It would be wonderful if you do decide to come to South Africa to to have you here live in the studio. Yeah, well, I'd love to find those graves. It's uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. People of the book on one hundred one point nine High FM. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. That was our interview with Louis de Benier, the author of a number of books. The most recently, So Much Life Left Over, but also his classic is Captain Carilli's Mandolin, which was made into a movie. And now we're going to move back home to South Africa for three books before we then jet out around the world. The first, the first book is by journalist Stephen Hofstadt. It's published by Penguin Books, and it's called License to Loot, How the Plunder of ESCOM and Other Parastatals Almost Sank South Africa. It is highly topical with the state capture hearings, the Zonda Commission currently causing ministers to fall on their own swords, and with the opening up of the real truth about what's happened in South Africa. Now, Stephen Hofstadter is an award-winning investigative journalist at the Business Day and the Financial Mail, and he has a long track record of uncovering corruption at state entities. His career spans almost two decades, during which he has worked or written for various publications, including the Sunday Times, the Mail and Guardian, Farmers Weekly, GQ magazine, amongst others, and is contributed to two books by renowned photographer Jürgen Schaderberg. His investigations have won more than a dozen local and international awards and have led directly to the removal of senior state officials and cabinet ministers. He's also been the recipient of a number of investigative journalist awards and has received five Journalist of the Year awards. The book is License to Loot, How the Plunder of ESCOM and Other Parastatals Almost Sank South Africa. ESCOM, the giant power utility that drives the economy, holds the key to inclusive growth and shared prosperity in South Africa. Instead, it has become the site of corruption so rampant that it threatens the entire country's well-being. Award-winning journalist Stephen Hofstadter's hard-hitting investigation traces the genesis of the ESCOM's looting spree from Transnet, where the blueprint for parastatal plunder was developed and refined with the help of top-dollar consultancies. From there, he explores how the Gupta family extracted billions in suspected kickbacks from state contracts and scored hugely inflated coal contracts through backroom deals and examines how ESCOM's top brass enriched themselves and their families at the power utility's expense. License to Loot delves into the secrets of the fixers, the deal-makers, and the bribe masters behind this epic pillaging of the public purse and maps out the intricate network of executives, board members, and cabinet ministers who facilitated it. From clandestine meetings in London hotel rooms and visits to African dictators to offshore tax havens, shell companies, and private jets worth millions of dollars, not to mention a secret Dubai bolt hole, fit for a fleeing president. In his book, Lasts to Loot, 
Stephen Hofstadter lifts the lid on a complex looting scheme that almost sank the South African economy. The book does become quite technical when he follows through, or you see unbelievable levels of research, all the different corporate holding companies and this very, very Byzantine uh, structure of ownerships. But he's done the research, he's committed it to paper, the book has been published, and the type of things that are coming out of the state capture hearings all very, very clearly documented here, whatever was available on the public record before the, the hearings, all very, very clearly documented in license to loot. When we come back after the ad break, I'm going to read Stephen Hofstadter's opening comments. It'll be his book in his own words, read by me, just to give you a sense of the responsibility he felt when writing this book, straight after our ad break. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. The book we're looking at is Stephen Hofstetter's License to Loot, How the Plunder of Eskom and Other Parastatals Almost Sank South Africa. And this is his preface. While on assignment for the Guardian newspaper in 2016, a photographer friend of mine, James Oatway, took a picture of a young man, I guess he must have been in his early 20s, collecting firewood at a dump in the felt near his home. Behind him, barely two kilometres away, a forest of cranes and the half-built boiler towers of Kusile, one of the world's largest coal-fired power stations, rise into the half-felt sky. For me, this image encapsulates something that's wrong with South, African, South Africa's power utility, ESCOM. At a time when the world is moving away from mega-projects that use polluting fossil fuels to generate electricity, ESCOM built not one, but two giant plants whose combined output would satisfy almost a quarter of the country's power needs. Before long, these projects became bogged down in mismanagement and corruption. The ANC made a handsome return in success fees and dividends through its investment arm Chancellor House's dodgy partnership with Japanese boilermaker Hitachi, and some ESCOM officials and their families became millionaires overnight. As a result, the cost of building the new power stations doubled to more than 300 billion rand. Taxpayers have been saddled with skyrocketing electricity prices and a crippling debt burden that threatens the economic well-being of the entire country, while rural communities continue to scavenge for winter fuel. Things went, went, went from bad to worse for villagers living near the construction sites. Already eking out a precarious existence on sparse grasslands, many were relocated to places where watercourses had dried up or were contaminated. Thickets once used for firewood were cleared to make way for open-cast coal mines. The villagers found themselves subjected to the constant din of coal trucks thundering past their homes, choking on the toxic fumes of mine dust that made their children ill. ESCOM's stated mission is to build a power base that fosters shared economic growth and development in order to ensure an even spread of prosperity. If anything, it has achieved the opposite. Instead of investing in cleaner, localized, small-scale energy sources, ESCOM has stubbornly clung to an outdated mode of centralized power generation that favors gigantic, expensive projects that destroy the environment. This monolithic model 
coupled with rampant mismanagement, has allowed or encouraged looting on a grand scale, ultimately constraining economic growth and putting the entire country in hock. Today, South Africa is the most unequal country in the world. For this, ESCOM must shoulder a fair portion of the blame. ESCOM's implosion also serves as a salutary lesson for those demanding the nationalization of land, mines and banks, the total state control of the country's productive resources, especially when clean governance remains a low priority, is a a recipe for plunder and economic ruin. This was not an easy story to tell. The looters and their parastatal deployees put a lot of effort into creating an elaborate smokescreen to cover their tracks. This was mostly done by shrouding scientific or financial complexities in impenetrable technical jargon and trotting out red herrings to deflect attention from their wrongdoing. When these ploys failed, they resorted to outright lies. Sifting fact from fiction and spin became a constant hazard of the job. This is Stephen Hofstadter's preface to License to Loot. It's a very, very topical book right now with the State Capture Commission and the hearings and the Zondo Commission with whatever is coming out. Here Stephen Hofstadter has researched a lot of what is being discussed from documents that were in the public domain. They're parts of the books that read almost like uh, a corporate espionage thriller meeting journalists in Dubai, getting leads on what to investigate here in South Africa, following up on the Guptas and the Zoomers. It's a very, very shocking read, but it's a story, it's a book that has to be read by us South Africans. And in a very similar vein, the next book, also South African, will most probably be the the book that a lot of people will start referring to when Tom Miani has his hearings for what he did to SARS. The book is Death and Taxes. It's by Johan van Lochernberg, and it's subtitled How SARS Made Hitmen, Drug Dealers, and Tax Dodgers Pay Their Dues. Johann von Lochrenberg's previous book, Rogue, The Inside Story of SARS Elite Crime Busting Unit, was an explosive book when it came out two years ago. We reviewed it here on Chai FM, and now two years later he's got his next book out, Death and Taxes. Nothing in life is certain except death and taxes, or so the saying goes. South Africa's, South African tax dodgers and criminals from drug dealers and rhino horn smugglers to one of the hitmen who shot Brett Kibble, have come to realize this truth the hard way. Former tax sleuth and best-selling author of Rogue, Johann von Lochrenberg, was at the center of several such high-profile SARS cases that spanned many years. He offers a riveting insider's view on some of these cases, like the investigations into Dave King, Billy Rautenbach, Barry Tannenbaum, as well as Jacob Zuma, Julius Malema, and others. Since the early days of democracy, a small but determined band of people at SARS who fulfilled various investigative functions came to know every trick and scam in the book and developed the expertise on how best to hold tax dodgers to account. Their cases often dragged on for years, but many of the defendants used every legal trick to fight back. But SARS never gave up. 
in this book, Tax, Death and Death and Taxes, von Lochwenberg also revisits events around the hollowing out of the tax authority post 2014 and brings the reader up to date on the extraordinary occurrences at SARS since the new dawn of the Cyril Ramaphosa era. When you read the book and when Johann von Lochwenberg goes into the details of how SARS was built up under Provan Gordon, under Ivan Pillay, to be a part of the law and order institutions of the country, and you see how they pursued criminals, you get a newfound respect for SARS. Uh, SARS, under the old management, was a world-class tax-collecting uh, arm of government. The success of SARS made it into a case study that was studied at Harvard Business School. A really hard part of the book comes when people like Johann von Lochwenberg were forced out of SARS. That part of that story he's told so clearly in his book Rogue. But then when he describes how Tom Mayani under the new SARS hollowed out the investigative powers of SARS, the ability SARS had to go after criminals and to bring them to justice. It becomes a tragic, tragic read. He does then update the book towards the very, very end as to what Cyril Maposa has done in order to rehabilitate SARS. But when you realize there were dozens and dozens of people who had between them Years, centuries worth of experience combines, centuries of experience, of their combined experience in pursuing criminals and bringing more money into the government's uh, treasuries. The destruction of SARS becomes a very, very hard-hitting part of the book. And when Tom Ayani is brought in front of his commissions, and all of this does become public, a book like Johann von Nochrensberg, Death and Taxes also will be a book that even though it's already published will be speaking in a dialogue to the headlines on the news and on the newspapers on a daily basis. We'll be back. We've got two novels and one more non-fiction book straight after this ad break. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. The next book we're going to look at is a non-fiction as well. This one from South Africa, we're now going around the world. It's a history of opium. It's called Milk of Paradise. It's written by Lucy Inglis. And it is a book that goes, it covers the history, the cultural, the economic, the history of opium. The only thing that is good is poppies. They are gold. Poppeteers, opium, heroin, fentanyl. Humankind has been enthralled to the milk of paradise for millennia. The latex of papaver somniferum is a bringer of sleep, of pleasurable lethargy, of relief from pain, and hugely addictive. A commodity without rival, it is renewable, easy to extract, transport, and refine, and subject to an insatiable global demand. No other substance in the world is as simple to produce or as profitable, and many of us will end our lives dependent on it. 
In Mulca Paradise, acclaimed cultural historian Lucy Inglis takes readers on an epic journey from ancient Mesopotamia to modern America and Afghanistan, from Sanskrit to pop, from puppeteers to smack, from morphine to synthetic opiates. It is a tale of addiction, trade, crime, sex, war, literature, medicine, and above all, money. It's a very ambitious, wide-ranging, and compelling account of the history the cultural, the economic, the social history of opium. I just want to read part of a review of the book from The Economist. The book itself reads very easily. It's a great history going back first to ancient times and Lucy Ingdis traces the human development of opium from ancient times. Huntington, West Virginia, is dying. As a share of the town's population, overdoses kill more than 10 times the American average. Startling numbers of babies are born, repeatedly, uh, reportedly addicted to opioids. The country at large, this is the United States, is suffering too. 42,000 Americans died from opioid overdoses in 2016, compared with 58,000 fatalities in the Vietnam War. This is not how things were meant to be. Scientists developed opioids to dull pain, not cause it. As Lucy Inglis recounts in her sweeping new history of opium, the tension between the substance's medical virtue and its dangers is ancient. From the earliest users, use, from the earliest users, u- uses, opium and its cousins have both soothed and troubled people. Roman herbalists used the drug to combat dysentery even as they warned against the chilled extremities and labored breath of overdosing. 2,000 years later, a doctor anguished by the addictive power of morphine reflected that no drug has been so great a blessing and so great a curse to humankind. Mrs. Inglis does not just trace the arc of history. She wallows in the exotic details of her story, from the sharpened bamboo the Chinese used to fight British interlopers to the heroin pills flavoured with rose water and coated with chocolate that were once sold over the counter. Remarkable personalities scamper past. Ralph Fitch, an Elizabethan adventurer, an opium trader, returned with tales of the King of Thailand and his pet gold elephants, all dressed in cloth of gold. Sometimes Milk of Paradise reads like a fiction. But this is a deeply researched and captivating book. The final chapters in which Lucy Inglis escapes the archives are especially compelling. Her interviews provide rich insights into the modern heroin trade. Asked if his family grows poppies, one Afghan farmer is blunt. Sure, who doesn't? A study of the online drug world is similarly revealing. One forum helped addicts avoid dangerous fentanyl-sparked heroin. The Silk Road, a website, facilitated over a million drug transactions in just two years. Like opium itself, Miss Inglis discovers the Internet has been both a blessing and a curse. The book is Milk of Paradise, A History of Opium by Lucy Inglis, a very timely addition to any person who's the shells of any person who enjoys history and a social history and economic history and a cultural history of something that has accompanied humanity's history, and that is opium. I didn't get to the two novels I wanted to do, just to mention their names, we'll get onto them 
beginning of next week's show. Strangers with the Same Dream by Alison Pick set in a uh, kibbutz in the 1920s. And then an international author who set a thrilling crime thriller in South Africa, Tim Willock's Memo from Turner, where he's created a South African Jack Reacher in Cape Town. Those two books will start off the show for next week. Until then, keep reading and good Shabbos.